Our first reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. David came to Nob, to the priest Ahimelech. Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to the priest Ahimelech, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, No one must know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered, David, I have no ordinary bread at hand, only holy bread, provided that the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest, Indeed, women have been kept with us, uh, kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is a common journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there except the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Is there no spear or sword here with you? I did not bring my sword or my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here except that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let us pray. Lord of the Sabbath, use this day and this gathering to wrap us in your gracious word. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today is part two of a four-part series on the sacraments, which may seem odd since there's no mention of baptism or communion in either of our readings. Well, today we are not going to be looking at either sacrament in particular, or really even both of them together, but rather at this thing we call worship, this setting in which the jewel of God's word and sacraments are placed. We Lutherans are part of something that is sometimes called a liturgical tradition. And really all that means is that we have a liturgy, a routine, that guides us as we worship, that remains largely the same from week to week, even as the songs and lessons are different. And if you've ever worshipped in a non-Lutheran church, you know that not every church follows the same liturgy we do. 
And in many cases, it is hard to recognize any liturgy or routine at all. In fact, there are many Christians who are suspicious of the very idea of a set order for worship in the first place, since it seems to them to be inauthentic or restrictive or legalistic. Their concern, and it's a concern I've shared at various times in my life, is that we can become so enamored with our prayers and routines and music and symbols that we lose track of the center, God's promise of salvation to us in Christ. I mean, with liturgical colors, green this time of year, by the way, and paraments, again, green, and albs and cinctures and stoles, green again, and of course, with the concern that some of us have with knowing the names of all those things, it seems to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have become distracted from Jesus at the center and more concerned with the elements of our liturgy, of our liturgical tradition. And to be absolutely honest, they aren't wrong about that danger. In fact, I have heard Lutherans say the very same sorts of things about our brothers and sisters in Christ who have more uniform and complex liturgies than we do. I mean, how many times have you heard or perhaps thought yourself that Catholics or Orthodox or Episcopalians or even other Lutherans are way too strict about their worship? But of course, the so-called non-liturgical churches aren't immune to that danger either, because every worshiping community has some form of liturgy or routine that guides their public worship, even if they don't print it out on a bulletin. Spend some time worshiping in any church, no matter how unstructured they seem, and you will notice a pattern, a routine to their worship. You will notice that there are certain times in the service where prayer is expected and other times song. That during the sermon, if there is one, certain responses are appropriate and others inappropriate. And that there is, in fact, some sort of dress code, even if that dress code is make it look like there's no dress code. And this is all good and necessary. Liturgy is good and necessary for any group of people who want to worship together. But the danger remains that it could displace the center of our life in Christ so that we come to think of our worthiness before God and humans as coming from the correctness of our liturgy and the various rules and guidelines that surround it rather than trusting in God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. So why all this talk about liturgy? Well, both of our readings today involve the heroes of the story violating some part of the liturgy, some part of the structures and routines and regulations that guided the worship life of the people of Israel. Our first reading, the reading from 1 Samuel, takes place before David becomes King David, though he has already been secretly anointed to be the next king. And here we find David on the run. Now, at this point, David has made a name for himself, both as a warrior and as a musician. He has killed Goliath, the Philistine champion. He has led successful military campaigns for King Saul. And in addition, he has been employed by the king as a special musician, someone who can soothe the king with his music when the king is troubled. 
He's even married to one of the king's daughters. However, King Saul is an insecure and jealous king. And not for no reason, for the prophet Samuel has told him that God has rejected him as king over Israel and is already giving his reign to someone else close to him. And so when King Saul hears of the fame and love that David is winning from the people, he is infuriated and more than once tries to kill David in a fit of rage and jealousy. And when it becomes clear to David that King Saul really means to kill him, David flees. One of his first stops on his way out of Israel is the priestly community at Nob. And while David has some loyal followers with him, he comes into the place of worship alone. Now, at this point, the temple was not yet built, so there are many places of worship at this time throughout Israel. And so the priest, when he sees David, is afraid. He's afraid of what it could mean that David, a member of the royal family and servant to the king, has come with no escort apparently unarmed and carrying no supplies. It's not clear if the priest knows of the conflict between David and Saul, but he asks David how it has happened that David is alone. And David, speaking to the priest in this house of worship, lies through his teeth. He tells the priest that he has been given a special mission from King Saul, a mission so urgent that there was no time to even gather supplies for the journey. So he asks the priest for provisions, but the only food that the priest has is the holy bread from before the altar. This is called the bread of the presence, and it was always set out before God's presence at the altar being replaced every Sabbath. And according to the law of Moses, after this bread had set out in the place of worship for a week, it was considered so holy that only the priests were allowed to eat it, and even then only in a special holy place. So David takes this holy bread, which is not allowed to him, for him and his men as they flee from Saul. Now we don't hear this in our reading today, but this deception of David's has consequences. For when the word of this reaches King Saul, Saul has the entire priestly community at Nob killed. This story of David on the run is the one that Jesus is referring to in our reading from Matthew. Jesus, when pressed by the Pharisees on why he is allowing his very hungry disciples to pluck grain from the fields on the Sabbath day, Jesus appeals to the example of David on the run from Saul. Jesus points out to the Pharisees that even David, the great hero and king of old, the man after God's own heart, the writer of many psalms, even David found it necessary to violate the regulations around worship in time of need. In addition, Jesus argues, the priests always violate the Sabbath, for it is on that day especially that they do their work, and yet, in their very violation of the commandment, they make it possible for the proper observance of this day for the rest of God's people. And furthermore, says Jesus, even without these examples, there's something greater than the temple here. 
For God, and God himself has said through the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus tops it all off with this doozy. The Son of Man, that is Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the immediate result of this, which comes after our reading, is that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him to destroy him. Perhaps the Pharisees, like King Saul before them, saw here the favored rival who threatened to replace them, and they, like Saul, decided to be rid of him at any cost. So what do these stories have to do with us? How do they relate to liturgy of all things? What I want you to notice is this, that those who are chosen by God have a certain freedom in regards to the regulations surrounding worship. That those who have received God's promise of favor recognize that the Sabbath and liturgical regulations are not an end in themselves, but rather a means by which God mercifully provides for all our needs, physical, spiritual, and mental. Or to use more Lutheran language, we who hear and believe the gospel are no longer under the law of the liturgy or the Sabbath to determine our worthiness before God and before humans. Christians have known this from the beginning, of course. From the first century on, believers in Christ have gathered for worship not on the seventh day of the week, as the Sabbath regulations command, but on the first day, or better yet, on the eighth day day, the day of resurrection and new creation, the day of new wine that breaks open every old wineskin. Even though most of the early Christians were Jewish and still observed the traditions of the Sabbath, they realized that their freedom in Christ extended even to the regulations around worship and Sabbath, especially as Gentiles began to believe in Christ, though this realization did not come without struggle. Earlier I compared worship, or liturgy, to the setting for a precious jewel. Like a beautiful ring made of precious materials which holds a valuable gemstone, both so the stone can be admired and so that it might not be lost. So worship holds the gospel in place for us. For you see, everything that we do in worship, all the liturgical action and prayer and adornment, all this is merely the setting in which the jewel of the gospel sits. These thousands of years of tradition which have brought us to our worship today, the structures both physical and social which support and enable our worship all these things are tools used by God to deliver to us Jesus Christ and his gospel promise of salvation. 
as beautiful as our traditions and our songs and our readings and our prayers are, they are not the main feature. Everything involved in our worship, from the art to the building, even the very profession of pastor and designation of Sunday as the Lord's Day, all of this is designed for one overriding purpose, that the gospel might be heard and believed among us. And if this setting ever stops serving that purpose, if this ring ever becomes so damaged that the jewel becomes hidden, or the ring can no longer keep this jewel secure, then it must be repaired or even replaced so that it can better hold for us this gospel, that we can hear it and believe it and freely act on it. If last week our focus was on the reverence due the sacraments, this week our focus is on our freedom in the worship that presents them. For all of this is nothing if it does not present Christ's promise to us in Scripture, preaching, and sacrament. This is why we can do things like, oh, I don't know, worship in the fellowship hall or experiment with a different pattern of readings. Because so long as the gospel is preached purely and the sacraments administered according to the gospel, our liturgy is accomplishing its purpose. This is why we have freedom in how we baptize or in the rituals surrounding communion. For as long as God's word of promise is put in the water, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' promise of forgiveness is put in the bread and the wine given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, we have the precious jewel of the sacrament in all its fullness. This is why, for example, in an act that might cause our more liturgical brothers and sisters to frown, I leave you seated for most of the communion liturgy and have you stand only when we hear the promises of Christ. Because I want to be sure that even if everything else passes you by, you are paying attention for at least that moment. This is why whenever I meet with someone about a baptism, I always tell them that even though we have a beautiful baptism liturgy, we are free to add or remove or modify any part of it so long as it still serves the giving of the promise in God's name. And this is why, even though I am the paid preacher here, I encourage you all to be preachers of God's grace in your lives, even going so far as to boldly declare to someone, in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sin. So, brothers and sisters, I leave you with this. Attend carefully to our worship life together. Respect it and honor it as a servant of the gospel, but do not be unduly bound to it. For the gift we have in Jesus Christ is greater than a thousand temples. For in Him and in Him alone we find the salvation that delivers us from sin, death, and hell, and the freedom to bring that salvation to a world in need.
Amen.